Hello! And welcome back to The Snub Club. A bi-weekly podcast where we just talk about the movie that got the most Oscar noms and no wins. I'm Danny Vincent. I'm one of your three hosts. Who else is here? I'm Sarah Kanoff. I'm your other host. Well, one of your other hosts. <laughs> and I'm Caleb Bunn. <laughs> I am the third of the third hosts. The third, third of the third. <laughs> Whatever. It's I mean, late. How many podcasts do you have? You have three, right? Or is this four? Four. Okay, then never mind. Well, is this your third one? Or is it your fourth one? Yeah, canonically, yes. So. If we're if we're talking about in terms of production, this would have been my fourth. But we don't have to get into the deep lore. <laughs> All right. Well, normally we do a like I call it the countdown, but we already did the countdown for the tenth Academy Awards because this week we're covering Dead End. So instead, we're gonna read through the distinctions on Wikipedia and talk about the interesting things that happens at this Academy Award. Now, first thing was this Academy Award was delayed a week. Because there was a flood in Los Angeles on 1938. I'm looking at the date right now. It says from February to March. So that means it was probably pretty bad. Because it lasted. It, it was considered a 50-year flood and caused $78 million in damage. Which is $1.43 billion in damage nowadays. Wow. So <laughs> how dare they delay the Academy Awards, right? Come on. The show must go on. No, I'm kidding. That seems pretty logical why they would delay it. The interesting things here was that two categories were discontinued after this year's Academy Awards. One of them was Best Dance Direction, our favorite. The other one was Best Assistant Director, which we are always confused by, I feel like. At least I am. I'm always a little confused by Best Assistant Director. I kind of forgot that existed, so... Uh, the Life of Emil Zola was the first film to receive ten nominations. Like, uh, and it was the only second biographical film to win this picture... After the great Zigfield. Oh, how times have changed. Yeah, I know. Uh, what was the... Wait, 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 wait. Now, now I'm curious. What was the last biographical film to win Best Picture? Was it The King's Speech? Am I missing one on that? No Spotlight. I don't consider that... I guess it's biographical. No, wait, what about Nomadland? Does that not count? Oh. Does it? I thought it was hmm. a... Is it a... It's a book. The main character is the main character is made up, but several of the other nomads in it are playing themselves. I would count honestly Argo more as a, bi- a biopic than um, at least Spotlight, personally, because it's about like a real. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, uh, now I'm curious. All right, so Louise Rayner received Best Actress for The Good Earth, which makes her the first actor to win two Academy Awards. And the first to win consecutive Academy Awards, because she won for Great Zigfield as well. Um, a Star is Born was the first color film to get a Best Picture nom. And this is what I thought was really interesting when I was looking at this. Is um, Well, actually, no, I'm going to say that one for last. This was the first year that every film nominated for Best Picture got more than one nomination. That's pretty cool. Uh, but Snow White... Uh, only received one nomination in Best Original Score. However, in the 11th Academy Awards, they gave Disney an honorary Academy Award because you, 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 I'm sure you all know that story where it's like they had one big statue and seven little ones. Uh, but it says this is the rare case of a film being recognized in two ceremonies. And I'm curious what the other ones are looking at that because I can't really think of any other time that would have happened. I was really surprised that does. that. When did when did this ceremony take place? This ceremony was in March of thirty eight. Snow White came out 
in, in December, December of 37, 37. Which is probably so it was probably lying. Yeah. Probably yeah, was not. So it was probably... That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not... I, obviously, we can't ever find out... Oh, it was in general released on February 4th, so that would make sense, too. Probably the nominations were before then. That's interesting, though. I, I thought that was interesting, at least. Um, and then there was a new Memorial Award. Um, but... I don't really care about those. It was the Irving Thalberg Memorial Award began this year. But yeah, that's 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 the stuff. So, so Sarah, we're talking about Dead End by William Wyler. What was it nominated for? Yeah, so Dead End. What did it lose for? (laughs) Dead End was nominated for four Academy Awards, just like Stage Door. Um, It was nominated for Best Picture, and of course, lost to The Life of Emile Zola. Best Art Direction for Richard Day. who lost to Stephen Gusson for Lost Horizon. Uh, Best Cinematography for Greg Toland, who lost to Carl Freund for The Good Earth. And Best Supporting Actress for Claire Trevor, who lost to Alice Brady in in Old Chicago. All right. Well, the, we all know about Alice Brady. We keep talking about her. Yes. We hate her. We hate her here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, does she play the person who causes the Great Chicago Fire? She does. Good for her. Mm. She she won the Oscar for playing the person. No, Caleb, she doesn't play the cow. Uh, she, she plays Mrs. O'Leary. Thank you. I was I was very curious. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh. So dead end. It was a movie. Oh, uh, excuse me. You're forgetting historical context. Okay, but you told me before and you forgot to look up anything about plastic surgery, so I assumed you didn't have any. Well, so I did. Mainly, uh, I was going to talk about the um, the Fox film fire, which was when all these uh, uh, nitrate film prints uh, spontaneously combusted, and we lost a lot of great film history. But you did bring up before we recording recorded that plastic surgery plays a big part, and you were surprised because you thought that it had not been invented yet. So instead, I quickly Googled plastic surgery, and the first plastic surgery was, or reconstructive surgery, was performed in 800 BC. So, we're good. I was wrong. Um, Wow. (laughs) Modern plastic surgery uh, was... Uh, invented after the First World War, though, okay. which makes sense because such a big need for it after that. Yeah, probably. I mean, that makes sense because also my my confusion, not confusion, but the term plastic surgery is a very to me. I always, you know, think that's modern because you know plastic. Well, mm-hmm. also, I just looked it up, but um, in *Arsenic and Old Lace*, the play originally came out in 1939. And plastic surgery is a big plot point in that as well. I haven't seen it, so now I know everything about it, Sarah. Thank you for ruining. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Spoiler alert! This is great, <laughs> uh, but that makes sense. I bet. I bet. Like it was innovated after the war, but then by the '30s, it was probably coming into commercial use. It, it makes sense, yeah, because you know. If it's in a movie, you know it's real. So true. Right? Yeah, I've seen just a, like poor people. Yeah, exactly. I was so surprised. Like, I, I I wish this movie. I kept thinking when it began, like, man, the name of this neighborhood should be. Hear me out here. What if it was just called Dump? 
This is a sequel. The dump. <laughs> the dump. <laughs> do you think? Do you think? And the like a couple blocks away, the My Man Godfrey story is taking place. I think it's probably on not not. I think it's probably like on the other side of the hotel or whatever. <laughs> the other. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if Godfrey just went out the back door, he'd run into these guys. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, all right. Uh, should we talk about anything before it? Or should we talk about how this was written by a woman? It was. We like women writers. They're pretty cool. And I clicked her Wikipedia page, and I see there's an entire section called controversy which is exciting um well what's her name first of all <laughs> oh lillian hellman sorry sorry <laughs> i thought you were saying what's her name uh i just want to read the sentence without context and then we can hash it out if you want to but if not we'll have a great out of context sentence for the middle of this podcast which is however she which would be lillian hellman had an epic feud with bankhead when Tallulah wanted to perform a benefit for finnish relief as the USSR had recently invaded Finland. I just think the term epic feud being on a Wikipedia page is not very impartial. <laughs> just With Tallulah Bankhead, no less. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like a story Tahani would tell on The Good Place. <laughs> what, that uh, I knew Tallulah Bankhead before she invaded the Finland? Because, you know... <laughs> So I haven't mediated a, a feud like this since the Great Finnish Banquet. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is I'm trying to read this and I don't understand it because I don't know what the Spanish Civil War was. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, yeah, the Spanish Civil War was in full effect in 1937. Um, it was basically uh, what led to Franco's takeover and Spain becoming fascist. There was a lot of uh, Picasso art created around that time as well. That's all I know about it. We are like smack dab. Like, we've been kind of stuck in Great Depression films for the last couple weeks, but we are about to start getting into war films because, like, all the research I was doing on 1937, it's like, this is what the Nazis were doing. This is what was happening in Spain. This was what was happening in Italy. Also, Japan's invading Nanking. Like, there was a clear rise of fascism at the time, um, and we're about to get less secret rich people plots and more secret rich people, but they're also soldier plots, I guess. Well, also, Lillian Hellman, uh, this seems to be relevant to this whole controversy thing that I actually recommend everyone look up instead of us trying to hash it out here, uh, is that she was a Jewish uh, writer, and I'm looking ahead into 1940, and obviously... She gets involved with some World War II stuff, and eventually she um, begins to lean. She not lean. She is listed as sympathetic towards communists, and thus is eventually Based. blacklisted. Uh, but again, this whole Wikipedia article seems rather interesting. I maybe I shouldn't be summing it up so quickly. Uh, we could just put in the episode description, I guess. Wikipedia Lillian Hellman. I do want to read wow. the end of the controversy section, which is just a quote. From a drama critic, one of his books about this thing, where it ends where uh, Tulua Bankhead said, That's the last time I acted one of your goddamn plays. Miss Helmet responded by slamming her purse against the actress's jaw. <laughs> so, 
This is pretty intense. I'm here. I, I think I think she sounds pretty cool. Yeah, honestly, I'm like, wow, she's she's pretty. Yeah, and uh, well, since I'm here, I should look up when Dead End appeared on Broadway because I assume she adapted her own play. She um, did not. She didn't. So, oh, then that's interesting that she got the movie right. Um, play was written by a man. Well, good for her to take it. No, I'm kidding. Oh, she wrote the children's hour. I know what that is. Kind of. Yeah, it was written by Sidney Kingsley, you're right. Who wrote, won the Pulitzer for a play called Men in White. Mm. So, um, we want to talk about, uh, talk <laughs> about Dead End? No. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, sure. Listen, I know y'all aren't big on it, but well, I was gonna. I well, do we, to do we want to? Do we want to do our general thoughts, or do we want to just have Caleb lead our way on this discussion? Because I do think you Let's should lead do general the thoughts. Y'all, y'all two bring down the mood, and I'll try to save it. Okay. Do I? I guess I'll go first because we just decided that before we recorded that I'm always going first now. Uh, I'm trying to uh, reopen my review because I have it on my thing. Uh, I thought it was unfocused. I, I was like, who's the protagonist here? Couldn't ever land on it. Was a little little confused at points about that. I think there are two really good performances in it, not of which were nominated for the Oscar. Uh, and I actually think one of those performances, the two are Humphrey Bogart, and the other one is uh, Sylvia Sidney. Uh, but the thing with Sylvia Sidney is I do think there are points where she's being directed to act way too big, which makes her smaller moments be more forgettable. Just kind of a bummer, because I think she's really good. Um, but I just thought it was a little generic, and also a little too ambitious, because, again, I never really felt like there was a focus on it. There were points where it seemed like it would come together, and then it would just start being about a different character, particularly the the male lead. And I, I should put that in air quotes, because nothing about the film itself would tell you he's the lead. You, I would assume if this has a male lead, it's either Humphrey Bogart or Tommy, Uh but that's not. You think who, so? If it has a male lead, I don't think it has a lead. Period. I think it has a different. <laughs> I think it has a different lead, but yeah. Well, I'm talking about the guy who's listed as the male lead anyway. Uh, I thought he was whatever, and whenever they cut back to him, I'd be like, okay, Dave. Yeah, uh, Dave. So, but yeah, that's basically my thoughts on it. it got some good performances, but besides that, I was a little. Oh, and I do think the cinematography and set design was great. Those are both well warranted noms. Uh, which maybe I'll pick one, maybe I'll pick the other later. I don't know, but yeah, Sarah. Yeah, I I guess I should preface this by saying because I didn't I don't know if I said this last week. I am a Humphrey Bogart stan. I love him. I used to watch like all of his films all the time. Um, I thought he was great. Obviously. Uh, this is kind of an interesting, not start, but like, because the previous year he got, he did like his first gangster role, um, and it kind of continued. There's this weird, um, we'll talk about it, but there's this weird, like, actor collective, like, Brat Pack-esque group that, like, if, like evolved from this, the Dead End Kids. Yeah, um, I did see that. I was a little confused yeah. by it. Uh, we'll talk about it. Yeah. But yeah, um, the kids were fine. I don't. This is definitely a movie that like you have to watch with subtitles because some of these kids. Yeah. Are just... <laughs> I thought it was. I don't know. Like I, I enjoyed. 
They're in Angels with Dirty Faces. Yeah, yeah. Which, did you know there's a sequel, by the way, called The Angels Clean Their Faces? I see that. (laughs) It's the angels wash their faces. Wash their faces, yeah. (laughs) Anyways, yeah, no, I thought, like, I liked the individual storylines, kind of. I could have, I mean, the kids were kind of just there for me. But I liked certain characters. Um, I thought it was kind of a cool, kind of like, West Side Story-ish prelude. So, it was alright. It was alright. Do you know what the one Humphrey Bogart movie I've seen is? Hmm. Guys, if you guessed, you'd probably get it. It's the Maltese Falcon. I mean, Casablanca. I mean, no, it's the Maltese Falcon. I haven't seen Casablanca. Okay. It's, it's one of those yeah, two. I mean, it's you know? either one of those two, yeah. <laughs> I could have been Treasure Sierra Madre. I feel like... Could have been Sabrina. Just... Actually, you know what? I think... I think... Uh... It was a teenage witch. I'm pretty sure, Caleb, you've once called me out before when I said The Five Bloods is like Treasure of Sierra Madre because they're both war movies, and you're like, no, it's not. I think I no, remember no, no, that. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, Treasure of the Sierra Madre is not a war movie. They are very similar, though. Yeah. They're both treasure hunt movies. Yeah, and I've heard The African Queen is just Jungle Cruise, so, you know. Anyway. Well, hopefully with more men made out of honey. Hopefully with more um, practical effects. <laughs> this was this was my favorite movie we have watched for the podcast. It immediately engaged me. You're right, Danny. It is super unfocused, but I think that's fine because this is a movie that's all about its location and its themes. And um, I was just on board with what this movie movie was saying. I will admit that there is a love triangle that's kind of at the center, which does detract, I think. It's definitely the weakest plot. Um, and some of the kids definitely are, you know, some of them are better than others. And I agree. I did turn on the, the subtitles <laughs> because, uh, Hey, see, I'm going to go over here. Okay. Uh, that got a little hard to read at times, but, um, yeah, no, the, the set design, the, um, the, uh, choreography, the cinematography, everything for such an enclosed movie, everything felt so lived in and so real. Um, and between this and Stage Door, I think I think we're out of the tunnel, y'all. Like these movies are starting oh to actually feel like movies. Knock on wood. Knock on wood yeah. quick. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Uh, sorry, I, I just don't want you to jinx us. Um Okay. Well, even if even I'm sure we'll watch more bad movies, but like The Fair Affairs of Cellini, even Love Parade, <laughs> these didn't feel like movies. But Stage Door, this, they felt like movies. We're no, back yeah. at the movies. The popcorn. <laughs> I need some popcorn. Anyway, should we, uh, well, well, I'll bring this up later. I just realized who I want to mention as my uh, joke pick, who would not be my actual pick for the nom. But you reminded me that I definitely need to talk about him at some point. But we'll get to him, because I guarantee you we'll talk about his character at some point. So... Uh, Caleb, I want you to guide us through the plot this time, because you were the most into this movie, and as such, I'm sure you will actually know what is worth talking about in it. <laughs> okay, uh, so the movie opens up with uh, a opening crawl about gentrification, basically. There's, yes. um, it took this forever one... for the last word to come yeah. on. It's it took a really long time. I was like, I'm ready. Where's the last the number line? And it was just one word. And I was like, what? Sorry, go on. There's, <laughs> um, there's a tenement. There's a tenement neighborhood that's right beside the river. 
and all these rich people have decided that they're going to start moving there. Um, but there's tension between the rich people who live in this um, large tower with surrounded by this uh, like fortress-esque wall and the um, lower income uh, residents of the neighborhood. And there are basically three groups who we follow. There's a group of, there's like a gang of teens, um, you know, very, as Sarah said, West Side Story, just kind of going around fighting for the sake of fighting and having something to do and just being kind of hoodlums. Um, then there is kind of your adults with uh, Humphrey Bogart, who's a gangster who grew up in the neighborhood and has come back. He's looking to settle down. He has a little sidekick who's hanging out with him. And there's Dave. He's a architect. His important part of the story is that he kind of did what you're supposed to do to get out of the neighborhood, and it didn't work because he went to college and he's still unemployed. Then he is in a love triangle with one of the women who is in the rich apartment building. Um, and the conflict there is that she really doesn't want to be poor and he can't provide for her. And then he's also in love with this woman named Kay, who is the older sister and caretaker of the leader of the gang, boy gangs. Kay is the Kay is the rich woman. Drina is the other one. Drina, yes. Thank you, Sarah. The third group is there's a family. Yeah, there's a family who lives in the um, in the hotel who um, the the street gang beats up their son. And so they want to go after Tommy. Um, and that brings we in some laugh. police and all this stuff. So well, well, those are three groups. And the movie just kind of uh, interweaves in between their stories. Right, yeah. So that does a pretty good sum of the movie. Well, you can talk about my other joke because he did bring it up and me and Sarah did both laugh at it. But uh, my, my my joke nomination was going to be Charles Peck for Best Supporting Actor. That's the kid? That's the kid. That's the kid, oh my like, god. Little, proper little Mr. Lord learning French up on the so balcony. Funny. He reminded me of uh, Maca- it's such a lame grab so I'm not going to make you guess. It reminded me of Macaulay Culkin but like in one of his bad movies. <laughs> like like Richie Rich. Rich. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. It was a uh, he just cracked me up whenever he was on screen. He's like, I can't swim there, I'll get filthy. Yeah, they definitely did a good job of casting a kid who got beat up. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page, too. That's what cracks me up. I have the Wikipedia page open. He's the only actor not to have a Wikipedia page. Uh, that's that's odd because I honestly think he's probably the best of the kids. <laughs> well, but he wasn't a dead end kid, so he didn't get to join the group. Yeah. Well, Poor let's guy. talk about the dead end kids real quick because I feel like this might actually have to do with him not having a career. Like in all honesty, <laughs> so the dead end kids—they were a lot of them were in the Broadway show, and they were like signed to who made this movie? Um, uh, uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Someone. Okay. Yeah. 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 Of course, Samuel Goldman. Yeah, so they were signed. They all had like a contract with MGM, and uh, they were horrific on set. They made a mess. They were disruptive. They crashed a car. Um, all kinds of stuff. So I can imagine them probably bullying this child in real life. Uh, <laughs> they were method acting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I went to his letterbox place, Charles Peck, to try to figure out what his second biggest film was, because this is his biggest film. Uh, 
And uh, it's in the 1938 adaptation of A Christmas Carol. Uh, where th- I want to just point out, this is a great uh, headline that really puts in perspective that A Christmas Carol probably became way more popular like now. Is no- the, 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 they marketed it as, this is greater than David Copperfield. And I think that's really funny to me. Yeah. Because I feel like most people uh, nowadays are like, oh yeah, Christmas Carol. Like, you know, like it's... You don't even need to market it as, like, better than another Dickens thing. It's its own thing. But it's like, nah, it's better. Anyway, he played one of the Cratchit kids, not Tim. He was not Tiny Tim. Which is probably good, because we probably want to beat him up. So. <laughs> so, yeah. And eventually, the Dead End Kids, they were, like, such a hassle for MGM that they were... I, I like to think that they all had one contract for... A group of children because <laughs> they were signed away to Warner Brothers, um, so they became a WB property. <laughs> Did they Why lock them in the Warner Brothers water tower? <laughs> That's the in, origin story. Are they in Space Jam too? I haven't watched it yet. Well, anyway, so that and boys, they're, they're goofy. They're, they're, yeah, they're, so they're all the kids, right? Besides, of course, our boy Charles Beck. <laughs> uh, uh, so Tommy is a dead end boy, I assume. Tommy is the leader, yes, the one who looks like B.J. Novak. You got yeah, B.J. Novak. That. You got Jughead. You got the only person I remember. His name's Angel. You got the new guy. You got the fifth one. I remember the new Milton. guy. His name was Milton. Milton. Yeah. I only remember because I saw the Suicide Squad recently, and I was I like, "You're gonna say that?" Yeah, yeah. I'm predictable. Uh, he reprised this role in a movie coddle, titled "They Made Me a Criminal." I say reprise mm. they say he played another character named Milton. <laughs> well, I think well, the movie they, kind they of do make him a criminal. Yeah, <laughs> they kind it kind of sets it up that like it's going to be Milton's movie, right? Like it's kind of like they bully him, and he's like, "I'll join your gang," and then they steal his three cents, and then Drina has to come in and like smack them around a little bit. It makes it seem like Milton is going to be. He gives me main character energy just based on his introduction. <laughs> It sets up his his rivalry with Jughead, who I'm calling Jughead because he wears a Jughead hat. I don't know what his actual name is. Um, is that Spit? Spitz? Is that Spitz? It? Maybe. Yeah. Um, and that that pays off at the end. But I wasn't getting if I was getting main character energy from anyone, it was um, it was K, and then not K. Sorry, Drina. And then they quickly quickly abandon her. <laughs> Because they set up she's good, she's striking, and they keep kind of she keeps talking about this, but we never see the strike, which is one of my problems with the movie is because it was based on a play. You never leave the neighborhood, when I feel like mm-hmm. you could see some things from outside it. Sorry, that tangent. I want to see more striking in film. This reminds me of. I just want to say this this episode, and honestly, a lot of these episodes remind me of the time at work where we had a work meeting, and I like just kept dropping puns and like. Every time it was just my boss staring at me, and eventually I had to leave the meeting because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> will that happen in this episode? We will see. It already has. <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, uh, I did actually. That, that reminds me of. I was saying this to actually my aunt when I was driving here. Is that I like that all these older movies, not all of them, but a decent chunk of them have some nice A cab to them. Like, they're like, why do you hate all these? Why do you hate us all, cops? And they're like, because you're a cop. And it's like, yeah, 
Checks out. Makes yeah. sense. <laughs> There's literally a scene where a cop asks Drina why she yeah. hates him. And she's like, a bunch of y'all attacked me today at the picket line. And I'm like, yeah, she's go like, off, Drina. And the, and the cop just goes, why are you picketing? Like, <laughs> Which is exactly what a cop would say. <laughs> There's a line that precedes that where he just says something like, you all just hate cops. And Drina's basically like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, we do. But what I also like about it is that, like, you spend a lot of time with the cop. Um, and I wouldn't say you ever sympathize with him, but he feels he doesn't feel like a like a prop. He feels like a real person. He's a cop, though. We hate him. But, you know, you're, you're right. He does feel like a real person. Um, I like him more than I like. Uh, what's his face? The brother of the judge. Who's oh, like, yeah, the rich guy. Yeah, the, the rich guy. Yeah. He's a jerk. He's a meanie. We don't like him. Well, why don't we like him? Because he's like, he gets attacked. He he grabs Tommy and Tommy. After his son has been attacked. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No one likes this. We don't like this. We like the son. Okay. In all fairness, though, like, so they taunted this kid before. He's an idiot. They were like, they were like, come on, come down here. And they called him a girl. And then later, he goes to the exact same kids, and they're like, come here, we gotta show you something. And he goes with them. Yeah, like, not, to, not, not to victim blame, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know why this kid would, like, like, oh yeah, let's go play. These guys want to be my friends. No, they don't. You should know this. <laughs> well, it's either that or hang out with your French teacher again for, like, the eighth day in a row. It should have made Francie be the French teacher. It would have made sense of her name. Well, her occupation's a bit different. So yeah. we could talk yeah. about that. But we let's talk, talk about yeah. the, the guy first, the judge's brother first, because we were talking about him. Yeah, so he, he grabs Tommy, and to get away, Tommy stab like pokes him in the hand with his pocket knife. Just it's like a little his stab. Yeah. But he says it's a stab. And he, he tells the brother. <laughs> Yeah. And he tells the Yeah. And the cop like is like, I can't hunt down a kid. That's like, I'm never gonna find him. It's such a waste of my time. And he's like, You better, cause my brother's the judge. And then we get this week's uh this week's moment where they say something vaguely racist. At least I took it that way. Oh yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, the, the cop, cop doesn't says, wanna be uh, They're gonna reassign me in Harlem. Yeah, yeah. It's way worse there. Okay, all right. Good job, movie. What I, I do guess. like about that scene, because it's a scene where he's talking to Humphrey Bogart, who is a criminal who has had plastic surgery, so the cop doesn't recognize him. But what I like about that scene is after the racism, it turns into like talking about the cop's economic anxiety. And what I like about that is that at every point, this movie like spins back into the character's economic anxiety, with, of course, the exception of the um, the rich family, because you know, rich. they don't have any. They they can just sit up in their apartment at, with their guarded guarded gate and like look down on all these people. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. Um, Let's talk about Humphrey Bogart in this movie then. So he plays a gangster. He's great. Presumably grew up 
on this exact same street in this exact same neighborhood because he knows Dave, who never got out. And uh, yeah, he's he was a criminal. He has a he has a body count of eight. Um, and he got plastic surgery. Yeah, he got plastic <laughs> surgery to disguise himself, and he comes back to the neighborhood because he wants to meet up with his childhood girlfriend, Francie. Francie. Who, who we will remind you is the sole acting nomination from this film. Yes. <laughs> she was also the biggest actress um, at the time, which took me by surprise because I have no idea who she is, but she shows up for one scene and she, I looked through her other roles and she was like always top billed in them. So, Well, she ended up, she was nominated for another movie called The High and the Mighty and she ended up winning for a movie called Key Largo. About ten years later, Key Largo so, is a name I recognize. Was it the name of that bar in Carbondale? Yes, <laughs> I think that was, no, that was Key West. Carbondale. That was Key West. Key West. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember that bar. Anyway, <laughs> anyway it's not uh, the bar you remember. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, uh, we're going to move on from that quickly. Uh, but yeah, so Francie has one scene. We get a lot of buildup to her. Wait, wait, wait. Before we talk about her, if we're going to talk about Humphrey Gobart. We got to talk about the scene with his mom. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you're laughing. I don't mean to laugh. The mom was so strange. I don't know if it was terrible. because. She was supposed to be drunk. I don't know if it was like she sound. She was, and I. This is gonna sound so mean, but she talked like she didn't have all of her teeth. Like it was very slurred. It was very just weird. I think, there was, I think she was probably just told act old, and she did that. You know, <laughs> this was, that was my because impr- I didn't think she looked that old of an actress. No. Uh, so I think she was just told act old, and then like yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> just, we'll keep that. Um, she was by far the worst what, actress in the movie. What I think was, what I remember about her scene is actually what happens afterwards is that like Humphrey Bogart is very sad, and then his like buddy's like, "Well, it's so weird. When I go hang out with my mom, she cooks me dinner." <laughs> it's like, okay, great. <laughs> that's not what this guy's mom did. Yeah, because really. his mom, his her, yeah, his mom's like, I don't want anything to do with you. You've yeah, made my life terrible. Get lost and die. He's like, say, why would you say that to me? She's like, leave. Or I'll call the cops. So, Sarah, as the Humphrey Bogart uh, expert in the room. Um, I don't know about expert, but yeah. This is a, he's fairly young in this, but also he seems much more, like, vulnerable than the stuff I've seen him in. Um, mm-hmm. Where The stuff I've seen him in, like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, I guess spoiler alert for that. There are moments where, you know, he is vulnerable in that, but it doesn't seem to be an emotional vulnerability. Is this kind of unique to what his brand would become? Um, I mean, this was this was kind of an early role for him. It wasn't until um, the Maltese Falcon where he he transitioned into noir films, which in noir. I mean, you don't really want your protagonist to be vulnerable. You want him to be this, you know, macho kind of guy. Um, so for the earlier part of his career, it was a lot of gangster roles um, just because he could, you know, play them well. Um, and yeah, he definitely 
I, I mean, he did like some, he wasn't like a Cary Grant type, but he did do some like sort of rom-com-ish movies as well, um, where he could be a little bit more vulnerable. But yeah, for the most part, he was definitely meant to be very tough, very uh, macho throughout most of his career. I think it's interesting um, to me, even though you just said he played a lot of gangsters, but I always think it's interesting when you find these actors who become big later on in life and you look at their earlier roles and it's like this where it's like, granted, I'm not too familiar with Humphrey Bogart and what his brand eventually became, but like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example from nowadays, but there's definitely been things where like actors now play like wholesome roles, but you look at their early stuff and they're just generally like not... (laughs) I'm trying to think of a good example, but I'm coming up dry Chris right Evans now. I think Chris Evans isn't... Chris Evans could work because, like, you go back in his roles in, like, the Fantastic Four films and the, the Losers. He's he's more like the Ryan Reynolds quippy type, where he would eventually become a release in the MCU typecast as this, like, you know, wholesome character. Yeah, I, I, I was definitely thinking of an MCU. ahead of him to change that. I was definitely thinking of an MCU actor, but I don't think I was thinking him, but I don't know why. Because also the thing is with him is that, I don't want to get on a huge Chris Evans discussion now, but now that he's done with Marvel, he's going back to those types of roles, you know? Yeah, So yeah, it's not really yeah. the same thing where he's, like, keeping his uh, thing. Maybe I'm thinking, like, even, like, Tom Cruise, like, in his early stuff before he became a leading man. I might be thinking yeah. of that. Yeah, because uh, he did, like, crime movies and stuff, yeah. Or even, like, watching his 90s stuff, where even though, yeah, he's a leading man, he would never do a movie like Magnolia nowadays, you know? Like, stuff like that. But I think that's one thing, it was Tom Cruise. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's what uh, the thing here was that reminded me, is, like, I don't think this is the type of role he would sign on to later on is like, knowing what I know about who Humphrey Bogart was in terms of fame yeah. and iconography. And that I thought is that was cool to see this type of role. Because it is, I mean, he was kind of, he did eventually kind of get typecast in this. He was in a lot of the other Dead End Kids movies. Um, but yeah, it's not, he's definitely not what he eventually became known for. I mean, he became known for being, you know, like a hard-boiled detective type. Yeah. If I can spoil something real quick uh, that happens a little later in the movie, eventually he and Dave get into a shootout because... After he is rejected by both his mother and his ex, he decides he's going to double down on the life of crime and kidnap the rich little Macaulay Culkin. I was so excited, but then unfortunately the rest of the movie had to happen. But Dave tries to stop him, and that leads to a shootout where Dave kills him, and then the movie keeps going for another solid 10-15 10-15 minutes and we wrap up the Tommy storyline. It was like, it was like 20 minutes. That, it was like 20 yeah, minutes. I checked the time. <laughs> were you guys surprised that Bogart was exited the movie so quickly? Uh, not really. I mean, he's third build. So I assumed because I, mean, I thought he was like the lead at that point, honestly, story-wise. He was, he was really driving the story. So I was like, well, him dying makes sense if mm-hmm. there's this much time left, you know? Sorry, Sarah. Yeah, well, this is, I do want to make note that this is a movie that eventually was the billing was switched um eventually he did become first build just you know with future releases um i'm gonna be totally honest with you i don't know if i was just like not really paying attention or what but i thought that the guy who got killed was his buddy uh i thought humphrey bogart just ran away 
I don't know. Like, I just, I thought he literally just, like, ran away from oh, no, the confrontation. I, Humphrey died. He did. Well, yeah, I figured that out eventually, but I thought it was his friend. I was like, where did he go? Because well, they the friend mentioned, died like, too. his friend does friend? get shot, I think. Yeah. He gets led, led away, so he's alive, but he, I do think he gets injured. His friend's name but is Humph- Punk. Humphrey Bogart is the one who he gets shot by the police, right? He gets so he climbs up onto a fire escape. Dave shoots him. He falls. Then the police come. He tries to shoot the police, and then the police lay into him. Okay. See, I thought that was the friend. So <laughs> I was confused. Do you have a question, Daniel? I have something I want to say that's kind of unrelated because we we mentioned Hunk. I, as I always do, click the Wikipedia page for the actor, and I found some interesting bits. One is, he was a regular voice on the show Top Cat. Another is, right. is that, uh, this is the interesting thing to me, but I will note that Wikipedia says, citation needed, but this it seems very, like, specific that it, like, the weird thing to make up about a relatively, you know, obscure actor is that his name's Alan Jenkins. He publicized his own alcoholism and was the first actor to speak to the House of Representatives and the Senate about alcoholism. And he was involved with beginning the first Alcoholics Anonymous programs in California prisons for women. Fun fact. Okay. For women. Okay. <laughs> I think it's At first I was fact. like, makes sense. Then it got a little specific and I was like, okay. <laughs> That's what I meant. That, it's but... like, it's a citation needed, but I also don't know who would be like, oh, this is a good line add to Wikipedia. <laughs> Going off on the hunk before we get back into the shootout. You know, at some um, point we do have to get back to... Uh, Francie, yeah. Francie, yeah. go, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we can, we can use this as a way to get back to Francie because working our way backwards from the shootout... Um, Bogart comes up with this idea to kidnap him in this great scene between him and Hunk. And Hunk has just been like his sidekick this entire movie Um, and has had like one or two things to do, but not much. But then they actually sit down and they talk through um, his why him and Francie aren't going to be able to work out. And it like humanizes Hunk in a way that no movie we have watched so far bothers to humanize a minor character. And Ultimately, this doesn't matter because Hunk just gets taken off by the cops at the end. But like, I just think it shows how much care went into like making all these characters feel real. Uh, before we move on from Hunk, I agree it is a good and I, I like it. Uh, I do want to say there's Alan Jenkins appears in two TV shows. I know you like Caleb. He plays a cop on oh, I Love Lucy. Yeah, and he was in Batman. Oh, I do. Those are two of my absolute faves. <laughs> He's only in one episode of Batman that's called Scat, Damn Catwoman, uh, which I assume which Judge Catwoman. Is, uh, it's 1967. I don't know if that helps you place which one it is. That's, that's uh, probably Earth a Kit. Uh, I will say that it says D A M, so I assume it's an episode about the Hoover Dam or something, because I don't think they it would, would let be, it. it. would be the Gotham Dam. Thank you very All right, much. Yeah, yeah. And he played a character named Lil Al and was uncredited on the episode. Are you looking up scat damn Catwoman to figure out which Catwoman it is right now, Caleb? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm pretty sure that 67 Eartha Kit would have taken over, but could have been Julie Newmar. Um, she could have come back uh, for the second or for the third season. Um, 
Man, I can just control F scat damn Catwoman. Uh, oh, no, it doesn't help. It says it's Julie Newmar. Okay, okay, cool. So that must have been late season two. Interesting. This is interesting to nobody but me. <laughs> it does say late season two, yes. Uh, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> anyway, uh, so let's go back to what we were talking about because we're actually feeling good our time. We're, we're, we're getting to the point where we start to wrap up, but we do want to talk more about Bogart and at least what's his face and then probably talk about the ending. What's her yeah, face? Yeah, we have to finish the kids as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so we're talking about Hunk. We we're trying to transition into Francie. I'm not sure how we're going to get there. <laughs> well, so the scene before that is uh, Bogart's scene with Francie where ultimately they're related because he wants to settle down with her and ultimately that doesn't work out. I don't really yes. remember the specifics why. Are well, you joking? I will. I are you joking? You. Wait, wait, wait. It, wait, Caleb, are you being serious right now or are you... Yeah, no, that was the one time in the movie that my attention was drawn elsewhere, so... What? <laughs> Sorry, this is like the one scene of the movie I really do remember. Yeah, Sorry, Sarah, so, go on. <laughs> so Francie, um, when he sees her, she's like disheveled. She's like kind of, you know, shifty-eyed. Um, and I just want to point out that he killed eight people. I feel like that's important to preface. Yes. And he yes. is, he finds out that she via heavy hinting because of the Hays Code is a So obvious. Yeah. And well, he yeah, that was set disgusted. up <laughs> he, He's just like, go away. And the most greatest stuff I like about her, the one thing I really like about her is when she he gives her some money and she's like, can I have 20 bucks more? And he's like, no. <laughs> well, another big thing as well that's also very heavily hinted that is outright said in the play is that it's implied, she says that she's sick, um, and in the play, she has uh, late-stage syphilis. Yeah, but in the, the movie, of course, I did notice that. in the letterbox description, it does say that she is now a syphilitic prostitute. And I didn't know the word syphilitic was an actual <laughs> word. Uh, but I guess it makes sense. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Really, what always what just stands out to me is the whole what I just said, where she's like, "Can I have more money?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, every character it goes back to like their economic situation. Um, okay, cool. I like I said, I, my attention was drawn elsewhere during that scene, so I just kind of got the gist that something about didn't work out, and they do hint earlier in the film that she's a prostitute. I kind of like that because it makes it makes Bogart even worse of a person, which I think at the worse he can be as a character, probably the better for the narrative. Yeah. And that's, again, also that goes back to my thing where it's like, it's cool to see Humphrey Bogart play like a not likable person at all. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Watch the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. <laughs> I presume he's very likable in it because it's a movie about treasure. Anyway, <laughs> the real treasure was the friends we made along the way. Yeah. Um, and then we should talk about the ending, right? So there's yeah, the shootout. I mean, there's, yeah. Um, 
It's weird, like how they do it. The, there so was the shootout. Sorry. And then on. one of the kids is just there, and the dad sees him, and is like, "Hey, I know you." Um. <laughs> the kid is Spitz, right? That's his name. Because yeah. I remember reading because Samuel Goldwyn was like, "You cannot show him actually spitting." I remember reading that. <laughs> um, and then Spitz rats out Tommy for giving the, the old guy a paper cut. Um, and then the police are on the, on the hunt for Tommy. Meanwhile, Dave gets an award be, reward because he killed this famous gangster. Uh, Drina is trying to convince uh, Tommy to run away together. And he's like, you can't do that. You can't jump the rails. You're a girl. Um, and eventually he's gonna, he's gonna like cut up spits for ratting on him. But then Drina and Dave talk him out of it and he turns himself in and we get this long scene where the dad talks about us like, he has to go to reform school because he hurt my boy. There was a moment and I wish I could remember the exact word. But it cracked me up so much. I, I don't even remember what it was, but it was like he he said something and I think the rich guy was like, no, he doesn't. And then just moved on. I don't remember. I wish I could. I, just, I texted you, Sarah, right when it happened. Like, Are you nice. talking about there's something where she says like. Uh, she says like it was just like he didn't mean it or whatever. And then he said like <laughs> until he does like something like that. I don't know. Maybe that sounds I just remember there was like awkward silence afterwards. And I was like. Okay, <laughs> like, like, is that, that just the end of the argument then? <laughs> well, but, and yeah. the, the, the rich guy is trying to justify it by being like, he'll be taught a trade in reform school. And Dave points out, it's like, you know who went to the same reform school? Humphrey Bogart. And he killed eight people. So, like, you're just perpetuating the system. <laughs> like, the whole thing circles back around to just, this is a cycle, it is going to keep happening. He tells Drina that he's going to use his reward money to try to hire a lawyer for Tommy, which gives the audience a little bit of hope. But the film literally ends with the opposite of how it began. It began like panning down into the streets and it begins panning up while like the rich people are having this party and the kid, the other gang kids are just walking away. Like nothing happened. Yeah. That's the movie. Dead end. Yeah. Sorry I talked so much on this one. I just I It's really okay, liked. we didn't like it. We, we didn't. So yeah, it's okay. I was worried that I wasn't going to say anything. So. <laughs> I just really liked... Um, I like the motif of the rich people looking down and them kind of being fortified in this thing. I like the... I like the... How Dave... It's like Parasite. Yeah, very much like Parasite. Um, I like how, like, every character, they they know how to, like, bring it back to the central ideas. Um and yeah, by the end of it, like you're kind of, I was kind of worried that this would pull like so many of the movies we've watched where it's kind of setting up this interesting thing and then just pulls the rug out, like how Alibi is an ACAB movie until it's not. But this, no, this like commits and it's able to stick the landing. Well, how do, I mean, the ending I think is kind of interesting in the fact of like, so Dave finally, I think it's, I think it's a cool little like, I guess callback 
Uh, because earlier, Humphrey Bogart's character says that Dave is only living on handouts, and he essentially just gets this huge sum of money as a handout, um, but he doesn't use it for himself. I just find it interesting that the hope of the movie does come from the fact that he has this money now that he could use on Tommy and Drina. Like, it feels, like, very kind of cynical in a way. It's kind of like, you know, you're poor. If you're poor, you're poor. If you got money, then use it. It just feels, it, it's it's kind of dark, honestly. Which is so refreshing after the My Man Godfrey's <laughs> of the world. My man. <laughs> my man. My secretly rich man living at the dump. The dump. All right. Should we uh, do our thing? Or do we have anything more you guys want to talk about? I assume not. Okay. So. Um, I think. I don't know. I think I'm okay. I, I'll, I'll talk about it when we talk about our nominations and stuff. All right. So this was nominated for. Sarah, can you read those again? Yes. It was nominated for. Best Picture. Best Art Direction. And best Cinematography. <laughs> Best supporting actress. You can hear Mary. <laughs> no, I'm like, I thought you were just laughing at the nomination for supporting actress. No, Mary's crying. <laughs> She's crying on the other side of the door. For, for the listeners who don't know, Mary is Sarah's dog. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I'll go first. I think it's actually pretty tough between both art direction and cinematography, but... I gotta go with cinematography. I thought it looked really excellent always. There's some really cool pans. There's actually one shot that really stuck out to me, which probably would be go under uh, unnecessary flashiness, but I thought it was so cool, is, like, Humphrey Bogart walks somewhere with, like, the grates of the uh, fire escape above him doing shadows on him, and it, like, makes him look like he's in a prison uniform. Like, oh, that's artful. That's cool. It, gets, it honestly gets me kind of dizzy looking at it. And, of course... Uh, we didn't mention this, but the cinematography, well, we mentioned it was done by Craig Tolan, who is, of course, the cinematographer of Citizen Kane. Uh, so I knew I was going to be able to look out for good cinematography even before I knew he was nominated for this. And I, I got it. I thought it looked good constantly. Uh, so I go with cinematography as my pick. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with um, art direction um, because there's a lot of things at play as far as that goes. Um First of all, it was built on a set. The entire thing was just a huge set on a soundstage. It was not filmed on location at all. Um, the as far as like the props go and stuff and like the set decoration, um, they used actual garbage that they found. And uh, Samuel Goldwyn was so like appalled by it that he would like try and clean up the set, and they had to be like, "Please don't do that." Um, so I, I appreciate the dedication from both ends. <laughs> so yeah, that'd be my pick. Yeah, it's, I have no idea which one I want to go with on here because both, like, the the set is amazing, but you'd get bored with it if it wasn't for the great cinematography, but a lot of the cool cinematography is able to be done because of the set. I think ultimately I am going to go with, um... Ultimately, I am going to go with the cinematography, though. Um, And I think it's mainly just comes down to we've seen movies that have had, like, intricate sets already. 
um, like the ship on Captain Blood or whatever. But this is our best movie in terms of cinematography. Um, like the way it introduces Tommy, where it shows him throwing a ball against a wall, it but just shows the ball hitting the wall, then it pans over. Um, when uh, Bogart's coming up with the kidnapping plot, there's this really cool tight framing between him and Hunk. Um, and then the whole shootout, while a big part of that is how cool the set is and how it feels very three-dimensional, the other cool part is how uh, how Tolan captures it. So I'm going to go cinematography. Nice. Good choice. Um, okay. And then we have to pick a nomination to add. So, Caleb, you start us this time. I don't want to go an acting pick because while I like the ensemble, I don't feel like the entire... Uh, like, I don't think there's one standout person. Um, I mean, Bogart stands out, but that's because I know it's Bogart. So I'm going to go... I'm going to go with the editing. I liked how they juggled all of these plots together and how... Um, like, even in that part after the shootout, a lot of time goes by, but I was never bored, and I was happy about how things were being uh, concluded. And part of that's on the story, but I think part of that's also on how it's edited. Okay. Cool. Sarah? Yeah, I am... I'm a bit torn on what I would choose, but I'm going to go with... Um, Normally, I would say best supporting actress, but I'm just going to say best actress. And I'm going to say, uh, what is it? Sylvia Sidney, who played Drina, um, specifically for one scene. And I also think that despite her kind of dropping off a little bit, unlike a lot of, I mean, most of the films that we watched, she doesn't completely drop off the face of the earth, um, which is a plus. But she has one scene where she is talking about how um, she met a man and he's going to he's gonna take care of her and he has this beautiful winter house or summer house or whatever. Um, and then she's like, I made it all up. And I just thought that was a really cool scene. I think she performs it really well. There is a, towards the end of the movie, she is a little bit too melodramatic. But that particular scene, she does a really good job uh, with that monologue. So she would be my pick. So, and you put her in supporting, right? No, I'm going to say actress. Oh, okay. Then we agree entirely. Yes. Uh, I, I really shouldn't even say anything because it's all the exact same justification you're getting. I, I also thought she should be actress. I think it's interesting neither of us are predicting Humphrey because I actually do think Humphrey's very good here. But that scene to me was the most, um, the best acting I saw in the whole movie, in my opinion. And so I pick her. I was actually... To be clear, though, if it wasn't nominated for cinematography or art direction, either of those, they would easily be my pick. Uh, I think those are both better qualities than any of the performances here. Uh, and I think editing's a good call, too, but I do think her performance is really good. I think this is a fun, bizarre episode, too, because we both picked the best actress nominee. <laughs> You're coming after my brand. Yeah, that's me. All right, do you guys want to know what we're doing next week? Or in two weeks, yeah, Absolutely. All right, I need my drum roll. Thanks, Joe. Anyway, so we will be returning with an act, a director we've had before. Uh, Michael Curtis had a film at the 11th Academy Awards that got five nominations, and it is titled Four Daughters. Do, do, do. Four Daughters. There's a, 
There is a bakery in Nashville called Four Daughters Bakery. Actually, it might be Five Daughters. All right, now Never you got to make sure we get uh, we got to get our ad money from them because you just pimp them. Um, what has Michael Curtis done? I recognize the name. Captain Blood. Oh, Captain, Captain Blood. Blood. Captain Blood. But yeah, there are. This has this will like be no no actresses that I recognize or no actors I, that I recognize. It has Claude Rains. You don't know who Claude Rains is? <laughs> Maybe I do. I don't know. He's the uh, invisible man. familiar. He's the invisible man. Oh, okay. And he's uh he's uh in Casablanca. He's, he's in the, uh, Casablanca, Lawrence of Arabia, Notorious, Mr. Smith oh, and Washington. also Mae May Robson, who was the lead of Lady for a Day, isn't it? Cool. Oh, I liked her. Um, but yeah, we will be uh, and to be clear, this will be a two-part episode once again. There is another film at the 11th Academy Awards we'll cover. So don't worry. After that, we'll go. We'll do a few that don't have two-parters. All right. Um, that was a that was this week's episode or this bi-weeks. I don't know how you call it. This two-weeks episode of The Snub Club. Uh, I'm Danny Vincent. You can find me on Letterboxd at Blank Mints. You can also listen to my other podcast, Wise with Ty and Dan, on anywhere you find this podcast besides Podbean. And also on Buzzsprout, where we talk about Marvel stuff. What ifs on right now? What if you listen to us? Right question, right? We'll, we'll see if you do. We'll check our analytics anyway. Ponder the question, what if? But don't act on it. Just ponder it. I'm Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, by the time this video is coming out, I'm probably putting either I am putting a lot of videos out on YouTube or I am about to. Um, because I participate in a thing every September where I put out a video every day. It's called Video Every Day in September. And uh, that's it. Yeah, I also have other podcasts, but I don't want to promote those when I'm promoting vets. So, Sarah. Yeah, um, I'm Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-E-K-A-Y 29, uh, Letterbox. I'm Sarah Knopf. Um, sometimes... Uh, I stream on Twitch uh, at SGK, E-S-S-G-E-E-K-A-Y. Um, and as far as we go, uh, you can find the Snub Club on Twitter uh, at Snub Club Pod and Facebook, just the Snub Club and Instagram, uh, Snub Club Podcast. And special thanks to our editor, Joe. Yeah, Joe, oh, we love I you. completely <laughs> It's okay. So sorry, Joe. Sarah remembered. Shows who the real friend is here. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll we'll catch you all back here hopefully in two weeks to discuss four daughters, not three daughters, not five daughters, but four daughters. It's a lot of daughters. Yeah, <laughs> too many daughters. Anyway, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.